Good morning. Ooh, we're awake. Mark chapter 9 this morning. We're continuing on in our series entitled, This is God's Church. And what we're doing in this series is helping us build out an understanding of what we mean by that statement that this is God's church. And we're doing that by evaluating false houses or false churches. We're kind of using those terms interchangeably. We grabbed that language from Isaiah 66, where God asked the question, hey, what kind of house are you going to build for me? And we've been answering that question by pointing out the false houses that can be built. And when these false houses are built, they can actually contain an uncontainable God. And we certainly don't want to do that. So we want to learn those lessons and then move in the other direction. So the first house we're looking at is the powerless house. And the powerless house is first powerless because it's built on a weak foundation, a weak foundation being anything other than a full biblical picture and 100% accurate doctrine of who Christ is. As Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, the second pathway to being the powerless church is to not be fully equipped through prayer to not know how to pray, to not pray as we ought, to not pray enough, to not pray about the right thing, uh, to not think that prayer is serious, to not think that prayer is needed. We could keep going. But to not be fueled by prayer. We spent a few weeks talking about prayer, and we'll revisit that as we move later on uh, into this message. This story today is, is one of my personal favorites uh, as far as a, a biblical story goes. And what it does is it shows the picture of the difference between the powerless church and the powerful church. And it shows it very well. So first, let me just kind of tell you the story. And then I'll tell you what the story means. It is a literal story. And so we can see the immediateness, uh, immediacy of the story. And then we can also kind of see what it represents. And then I want to draw some conclusions about what that means for us now and where we go as a church. And when I say that, I mean like us, like we, like us in this room, like where we go as a church as a result of understanding this story. So here's the story. Jesus and three of the disciples who become the really the leaders of the first church, Jesus and then Peter, James, and John are up on a mountain. And they're having what biblically we refer to the time as the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's, we'll just sum it up as a, a powerful, meaningful, um, spirit-filled experience with God. And while that's going up on the mountain, down on earth, the disciples are attempting to cast a demon out of a boy. The boy had been brought by the father. We see that the demon had been in the child for a very long time and had um, infected him and affected him since childhood. And so the boy had heard of Jesus and, and the disciples, and so he brings the boy. And at this time, the disciples had already been casting some demons out of other people. And so he thought, well, they did it there. They can do it now, or they can do it here. And so he brings them to them. And while they're there, a crowd gathers. There's first a religious crowd represented by the scribes. And then there is a worldly crowd. And so we have the disciples, the religious crowd. We have the worldly crowd. And then we have the boy and the father. And so these are all the different players in this story. And as the boy is brought to the disciples, they are unable to drive the demon out. And we don't know how long they tried to do it. We don't know what, um, you know, words they said or anything that happens in that. We just know that they were incapable of doing it. 
And so what happens next is Jesus and Peter, James, and John come off of the mountain after their great mountaintop spiritual experience, and they show up, and Jesus goes, hey, what are you all arguing about? And the boy's father steps up and goes, here's the deal, Jesus. I brought my son to your disciples to see if they could help, and they couldn't. And then Jesus gives a rebuke, and it's kind of hard to tell exactly who he's rebuking. If he's rebuking the father, if he's rebuking, probably not the father as you read the story, um, but he may be rebuking the religious crowd. He may be rebuking the world, like the whole crowd. He may be rebuking the disciples, or maybe he's rebuking everyone. We don't really know. But what happens after he rebukes them is he says, bring the boy to me. And so then the boy is brought to him, and Jesus casts out the demon shakes the boy, and they look at him, and they think, I don't know if he made it, and Jesus lifts him back up. And then, at that, after that, Jesus and the disciples, they go to a house, and they're kind of um, recapping the day's events, and the disciples go, hey, Jesus, I thought you sent us out to do this. It's not in the text, but implication. I thought you sent us out to do this. Why could we not cast this one out? We've been successful elsewhere. How come we're not successful right here? And Jesus says these words, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. This kind can only be driven out by prayer. He tells us then that there is an object that is in opposition, but there is a pathway to drive out the object, and that pathway is prayer. Now, this is the story. Let's talk about Quickly, a a few um, parallels that we need to draw to the story. And as I tell the story this morning, also, I want you to know that I think there are both individual and corporate applications to it. And I'll pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to you as an individual on what needs to be driven out and will also collectively help us understand the darkness of the day that needs to be driven out. And I don't mean like today, day. I mean like today as in like the era that we're in right now. In the story, the disciples clearly represent the powerless church. The boy represents all those enslaved by the captivity of sin and the darkness of the present kind. The world represents the watching world. How will the church respond? And the religious leaders represent the religious world with their own ideas on what should occur. And then Jesus and Peter, James, and John, I think with him, represent the powerful church. And the catalyst of change in the story is when Jesus shows up. And so here then, we have the story. We have the story underneath the story. And there's a few general conclusions that we can kind of quickly draw from the story. That different problems need different solutions. That there are certain entrenched spiritual actions, activities, beliefs that can be driven out by casual observance. But then there are other things that get so deep that we could say it this way, bigger battles need bigger weapons. Another conclusion we can draw here is that not all transformation, both individually and corporately, is quick and easy. That there are certain times when the enemy gets in so deep that our casual observance to faith will not change us anymore. These are just general conclusions 
to draw. As we've been saying it around here, there are times then where the Christian and the church must go deeper, not wider. Where we must press in to the presence of God if we are going to see certain kinds taken care of. Now, let me help us understand this word kind because I'm going to be alluding to it throughout our time together. The kind represents the thing that right now is entrenched so deeply inside of you that casual observance to faith will probably not change anymore. And it could be a variety of things. The kind might be the state of your marriage. The kind might be the selfishness inside of you. The kind might be your pride or your greed or your envy or your whatever. And the kind is in pretty deep inside of you. And although you continue to practice casual faith, uh, it still kind of remains. The addiction is in deep. The thought is in deep. The dysfunction is in deep. Now that's individually. Collectively or corporately then, what the kind is, is it is a, um, a, a temporary seasonal issue that is uh, affecting a large group of people. There could be a kind in a body, like a church. There could be a kind in a collective culture, which is what I'm going to talk about this morning. And the kind, when it settles in, does not want to leave. When the enemy gets a stranglehold, when the enemy has a firm position, he does not want to abandon it. And so the kind stays in deep because the enemy has deep roots. That's what the disciples were facing here in this story. And so maybe you've thrown up a prayer and you said, God, I don't understand why I'm like this. And nothing happened. Or maybe you threw up a prayer and you said, God, it would be great if you moved collectively. Now see, the premise, by the way, of everything we've done this year as a church and everything we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is that the, the time for casual observance of our faith is over. That the, the season... Of, of even, I think, of preaching to uh, a point where uh, my objective would be, I hope you feel better when you walk out. I hope I said something that kind of, uh, as the scriptures say, tickled your ears is over. That the kind is in deep. And it must be uprooted or it will remain. The boy represents the world in need. The world in need. And guess what? Sometimes the boy can be in close proximity to the church and it still be in. Because the powerless church can't uproot it. So let's do what the disciples actually did pretty well. And let's do what I think we need to do, which first, which is to identify the kind. Because it seems like the kind that Jesus alludes to, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, that we need to identify what the kind is, because if we're unable to identify it, then we're unable to properly combat it. 
The father in the story knows exactly what the kind is. He says, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, paraphrase, so I asked your church to cast it out and they were not able. They were ill-equipped to combat this kind. And then a few verses later, when Jesus shows up, the kind revolts against the presence of Christ, and it does exactly what the father described that it would do. In other words, the father knew the kind. And Jesus then goes, well, how long has this kind been going on? And he goes, well, since childhood. Seems to be then that we need to identify what is the kind, what is the present darkness, what is plaguing, and then also what is its origins, how long has it been around? Now this is a good practice for ourselves. For some of us know what it is that the kind is that seems to hold our heart. We keep circling back to it. We keep participating in the action again. The the same thought, the same thing keeps kind of circulating back in our lives. Why? Because the kind is in deep. And it's helpful to identify the kind and even to identify its origins. Because then we can begin to combat it properly as Christ teaches us to do so. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you my perspective on what the kind is corporately in our current world. What the kind is that has entrenched itself so deep that the church, it appears, seems powerless to do anything about. And if we're going to do something about it, well, then we need to understand what it is that we're facing. And so I'm going to read you a paragraph. This is a diagnosis of the situation and the kind. This is our kind identification. And after I identify the kind, then I want to talk about its origins and how it's crept in. And then I want to talk about what this text points us to on what we get to do about it. Here's the kind. We have abandoned absolute truth for a progressive model of understanding that has no foundation. Consequently, creating intellectual anarchy and degrading the moral fabric of society. As society continues this trend, it is producing greater depression, division, and destruction of life. Let me read it again. This has a lot of words. We've abandoned absolute truth for a progressive model of understanding that has no foundation. Consequently, creating intellectual anarchy and degrading the moral fabric of society. As society continues this trend, it is producing greater depression, division, and destruction of life. This is the kind. The kind that we are facing right now, and this has not always been the kind. There have been seasons in the era of the church where the kind was not so deep, and all preachers had to do is stand up and say, hey, remember your Bible. And people would go, you're right, we should remember our Bibles, and would come back. That is not the kind that we live in right now. This kind is in deeper. It is more pervasive. Let me say it another way. The collective deterioration of biblical truth has accelerated the destruction of human life. The collective deterioration of biblical truth has accelerated the destruction of human life. Let me say it one more way. This is how Jesus said it. The truth sets us free. 
lies keep us enslaved. And the lies are being more and more widely accepted. The deeper and longer they exist, the harder they are to uproot and the more they will destroy. As culture more and more engages with and embraces lies that are antagonistic to biblical truth, then the kind gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and it becomes harder and harder and harder to uproot it, and there will be more and more destruction of which God has created. This is an assessment of the current kind. There is an aversion to the truth of Scripture. Now, where? Where did this kind come from? What are its origins of this kind? When did it begin to settle in? Because it wasn't always this way. I alluded to this a few weeks ago. I will bring it up again today. That if we evaluate our current cultural situation we'll see that culture, um, we say as a whole, I know that there are those of us who are the remnant, but uh, culture collectively seems to have just rejected the first chapter of the Bible. Like just rip out chapter one as if the enemy knew. If I rip out chapter one, page one, line one, almost as God knew what he was doing when he was writing it. If I just change line one, then, then he can win everything else. And so line one begins how? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we ask ourselves, what are the origins of this kind getting in deep? I'll use the word origins as a pun. For a couple, what, hundred something or so years ago, Darwin writes a book called The Origin of Species. And it begins to raise up a question in the mind of society, not that it had never been raised before, but a pathway to a more or greater understanding of his question of scripture that gets more and more entwined into our culture and the truth of it then begins to seek in deeper and deeper and then Christians somewhere along the way start trying to bow down to it and it begins affecting even more. And the idea then that God did not create the universe but that it was created randomly, then began to chip away at the idea of the Imago Dei, that humanity is created in the image of God, and so therefore every single human being has value because we are made in the image of God, because we are his creation. But if we are not his creation, well, then we have open up the door to intellectual anarchy, causing the destruction. I mean, we can follow this origin of thought as the undergirding of the most secular societies of the last 200 years. Secular societies that wrought havoc and death. We can trace back this origin to communist China, to socialist Russia, atheistic nations that have no value for human life in their undergirding foundation that created millions and millions of murders, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of deaths. Trace back to this idea that God didn't create and God doesn't exist. In our own country, 
We can trace the origin of this thought back to the degrading of human life, that it has no value, that it wasn't created in the womb, and we can see the progression of thought that gave way to abortion. Our own version of what happened in Russia and China. And how this then gave way to the idea that, that humanity is not born in the image of God and therefore not in the womb. And, uh, and then the abortion clinics take place and they root themselves in segments of society with those who are most vulnerable with the clear purpose of trying to eradicate an entire race. All rooted in, well, he didn't create the universe. The kind is in deep. You know how deep it is in? A few years ago when the conversation was resurfacing on third-term abortions, I posted something on my Facebook. I said, okay, Christians, I know we might disagree on other things and lots of other stuff and, and everything like that, but hey, we can all agree on this, right? The vitriol of response that I got from professed followers of Christ on that post. The kind is in deep. The kind is in so deep that professed followers of Christ will want to argue about something like that. That's how deep it is in. And the kind does not stay put. Six years ago from yesterday, we redefined marriage collectively as a culture. We are now having conversations today, six years later, that we would have never thought we would be having. In six years. The kind is in deep, my friends. And I think it leaves us with two options. One, we can't ignore it. We can't ignore it and we can pretend that our casual observance of faith, that our Sunday morning pep rallies are enough. Or we can see that the kind is in deep and that the powerless church seems powerless to do anything about it. But then we can own up to what it is that we have been called to be. And we can fight back. And we can fight back. And I believe this text teaches us how to properly fight back. So let me tell you where I think the text points us in this. Verse 29. First thing I think it points us to. And he, Jesus, said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the disciples asking us, what do we do and where do we go? And Jesus' response is, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. I think the first thing this text points us to is this. Remain hopeful. Remain hopeful. For Jesus does not say, oh, this kind can't be driven out. Jesus doesn't say, this kind has already won. He says, this kind can be driven out by prayer. He doesn't even just say, it can't be driven out. You go figure it out. He tells us this kind can be driven out, and here's how you do it. It can be driven out by prayer, which means as the church, we have to remain hopeful. We have to remain hopeful that the church is not powerless against the present kind, 
We have to remain hopeful that if we root ourselves in prayer, then he will reveal to us exactly how it is that we are to drive this kind out, and we must believe that it will be driven out. And we also then must not become like there is a temptation to do, which is to isolate ourselves and say, maybe this kind will pass on its own. And in that time, I'm just going to hide out, protect my family, and let the kind take care of itself. There is a temptation to that. Or there is a temptation to do this and say, okay, God, just end it and bring us all back, right? And I know we're supposed to want Jesus to come back, and we should want Jesus to come back, but I am grateful for faithful followers of Christ throughout the years who instead of just hiding and isolating and waiting for the end, instead ushered in great spiritual moments, revivals that have left us here today. The kind is in deep, but we must remain hopeful. The second thing I think this thing points us to, we find in verse 22, when Jesus just makes the allusion to how often the demon would come in and try to destroy the boy. We have to recognize that the path of the enemy is one path, destruction. The enemy wants to destroy. The enemy wants to destroy. And we'll use whatever methods necessary to do so. The father says sometimes it just, it threw the boy into the fire in order to destroy him to destroy him. You know, it's interesting. After Jesus ascends into heaven, what is his power? How is it symbolized? Fire. Fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit coming down. The second thing we have to do is we have to redeem the methods, or said another way, we have to take back that which the enemy has stolen and call good what is good. The worst kind of evil is when um, evil calls good evil and evil good. And what the enemy wants to do here is the enemy wants to take fire and use fire to destroy it. And God goes, I'll do you one better. I'll take fire and I'll use it to restore you and to empower you. There are methods right now, there are things entrenched that the enemy is using to destroy you that God wants to use to restore you. You might look and you say, my marriage is going to be the destruction of me. Now, God gave us marriage to sanctify us. Right now, God wants, or the enemy wants to use sexuality as a way to confuse and confound and to destroy. And God says, no, I gave sexuality to be good. We must not let the enemy take and, and destroy that which God created to be good. The third thing this text points us to. We find it in verse 17. It says, And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. The third thing it teaches us is this. We must fight the enemy, not the carrier. This is so important. So important. I will give the disciples some credit in this story. Because what they do not do when the father shows up with the boy is go, Whoa. You can't come in here and, and keep the boy at arm's length. No, what, what they do is they tried. I mean, I'll give them credit. They tried. They weren't fully equipped, but they tried because they knew, the disciples knew that the issue was not the boy. The issue is the demon inside of the boy. 
And what we must do as we are fighting back this kind is fight the enemy, not the carrier. We must fight the enemy, the darkness that is underneath, not turn our vitriol or our anger to the people that are infected by the disease of sin. Now with them, we say, come on, come on, come on, come on. Oh, and let us fight the sin that is within. And let us drive out the sin that leads to slavery, that leads to this death and destruction and despair. Let us drive it out, but let us love, metaphorically here, the, the boy. Let us love those who are plagued by it. We must not, we must not begin to fight those who are infected by the disease of sin. Fight the darkness underneath. Fourth thing I believe this story points to. Verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So the most of them said, he's dead. The fourth thing this points us to is this, that victory is going to be violent. Victory will be violent. Why? Because the enemy is in deep. Because the enemy has entrenched himself so much that in order to drive it out, it is not going to happen without a fight. That we can't just think if we do everything like we've always done, that all of a sudden we're going to see wins. We're going to see things taken back that the enemy has stolen. No, victory will be violent because the enemy has a stronghold and he wants to hold it. It means then that the victory will not come from a lot of people of faith who are casually observing their faith with the same measure that they casually observe their golf game or whatever else. That it will come from a series of believers in Christ who say, I understand the weight of what is going on and the depth of the kind and how prevailing it has become and that we are willing and girded up by the power of the Holy Spirit and the weapons of spiritual warfare to drive the kind out. The kind is in so deep that it even makes us think in moments like right now, is this kind of conversation really necessary? Is this just crazy Pentecostal talk? The kind is in so deep that we um, even have begun in our churches at times to make excuses for buddying up with the kind. That's how deep it is. And the victory will be violent. And the battle has to be fought. And it has to be fought by equipped, Holy Spirit-filled followers of Christ. It is the only way we will win. And the kind is in deep and the kind wants to keep going deeper. The whole point of the story is that it's saying that the kind wasn't going to stop until it totally destroyed the boy. And the kind of our current situation isn't one day just going to stop. If you're sitting out there thinking, like if I just waited out enough at some point, this will just kind of end and it'll just stop and we'll all go back to like, you know, like everything will be calm and peaceful and nice. It's not going to happen. 
The kindness is going to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And we can even look at the history of our country and see when kinds resurfaced, when different kinds came out, that the thing that drove them back was not political action. It wasn't like society all of a sudden just waking up and saying, change it. It was the church coming alive. Like even in secular history books, why do we read about the Great Awakenings? Why? Because they can even see how those were essential to the formation of our country. They're historical movements of things that were surfacing then underneath that shifted tides. And yeah, I for one am willing to say that the kind is in as deep as it has been. That victory can come, but it will be violent. The fifth thing that this points us to is this. We must help people stand back up. We see this when Jesus says, after the boy was on the ground, says Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. See, when we get close to uprooting the kind, it will lash back. It will lash back. You ever been in a situation where you knew somebody had a demonic spirit in them? Like been around it, okay? Um, I, I think I've been there twice, all right? That I notably knew. And one time, I just began to pray. And the face of that person in that moment was the scariest thing I have ever seen. Because when you start attacking the kind, the kind will fight back. Like he did to this boy. And what did Jesus do? He reached his hand down. And he said, stand on up. What does the church have to do? It has to be the greatest lifter of people. It has to look at those who are recovering from the kind. It has to look at those who are, who are escaping the present darkest, darkness, who are escaping um, um, the, the attack and the lies of the enemy over their life and realize that the violent victory might leave them battered and bruised. And our job as the church then is to lift them up, is to befriend them, is to circle around them, is to walk with them, is to teach them the truth of the scriptures, is to help their mind begin to be transformed, is to help to uproot anything else that is a stronghold in their life. It is to deepen the work of the gospel inside of them. This is the work of the church. This is the path of discipleship. This is what we have been talking about for a year. That this then is our job, is to raise people up and to lift them back up so that they can walk in victory over the kind that they have now been rescued from. We say it right here, our mission statement is to help people experience redemption and live in freedom. Had Jesus left the boy on the ground, the boy might have experienced his redemption, but he wouldn't have been walking in his freedom. It is the job of the church to do both. We proclaim the gospel, we pray, we uproot the kind, and then we walk you into the freedom, the abundant life, the opposite of the demon trying to destroy the God who wants to give life. So we must be that. The sixth thing and last thing that this story points us to. I'll read verse 14 to help us understand it. 
And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Oh, don't you love this part? Can't you see it? The boy is the seeking world, enslaved by sin, carrying the weight of sin, being attacked, being thrown down in the ground. I mean, the onslaught. And by the way, if you are looking at me and you're like, I think you're blowing things out of proportion a little bit, can I just tell you something? Open up your eyes. Open up your eyes. The enemy is having a field day with children warping their minds, with us trying to normalize things that even five years ago we would have never thought we would have needed to have discussions around. And as the powerless church was incapable of helping the boy, they did what so often the church does. They circled around with the scribes who were the great studiers of Scripture, and they sat around and they argued. And so there is the church and the religious leaders sitting in a circle arguing while the boy was still in great need. And the sixth thing this story points us to is to stop arguing about religion and start praying for revival. Because all of our arguments have got us nowhere. All of our arguments have not brought forth what we need, which is the Spirit of God moving. And we can't control everybody else, and we can't dictate what every denomination and what every church and all of that. And I know there are calls and questions about like, like corporate-wide church unity and everything like that. And maybe there will be a day for that. But what we can do is we can dictate what we do here. Okay? We can control who we are here. And what we can say is we're done arguing about all of the petty, insignificant things that can plague and hold down and contain an uncontainable God. And instead of circling up and arguing, we can circle up and pray. We can circle up and we can pray because we are hopeful that this kind will be driven out. It will be driven out. And that a move of God, a move of an uncontainable God who there is no one like can drive it out. And so we stop the arguments. We stop the insular circle of religion and the church circled up while the boy is on the outside. We open it back up. And we pray that when the boy shows up next time, the gospel will take root and drive out the kind. So then this requires demands, I think, of us that we begin to pray. And I don't think what the text is saying is you have to pray harder or louder. And some of us, we've been in those environments. We're like, just yell more. And when you think about it, that actually makes me think more of the guys who are crying out to Baal than it does Elijah who just sat there and went, oh, and God send the fire. 
So we already know how to pray. Well, we, we at least do theoretically. We talked about it for like six weeks. Lord, in your infinite strength and wisdom, do what is for your glory and the advancement of the gospel in me and the world. That's prayer. So it would seem like the natural response of this is to pray. I remember listening to my favorite preacher. It was 1958 when he preached this sermon. And he said, isn't it curious that as the church becomes less and less interested in the spiritual state of the world around it, that it greatly desires to gather and sing and greatly retreats when it is called to pray. I wish this verse said, this kind can only be driven out by Chris Tomlin songs. This kind can be driven out by prayer. What it's saying is you've got to root down the gospel so deep in you that you then gain the discernment and the wisdom on how to operate. So friends, that's what I think we got to do. Now, if I have not convinced you of the great need of this, let me just paint this picture of the story one last way. Because I know whenever we read these stories, we always go, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? And I don't think it's wrong for us to look at ourselves and to see ourselves as the disciples, the incapable disciples, the powerless disciples. I don't think that's wrong for us to look and to say, I don't want to be the powerless church, so I'm going to do the opposite of what they did so that we can get the opposite of what they got. But for me, I've got to place myself somewhere else in the story. You know where? The little boy. Because see, the whole story changed when Jesus showed up. And the disciples who were incapable of doing what needed to be done, Jesus in a moment shows up. And the moment he shows up, he looks and he says, bring the boy to me. Bring him to me. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember the moment in my life where those visible words weren't spoken, but they must have been spoken in the heavenlies because all that I was enslaved and captivated to, it was like in a moment, Jesus spoke something, bring Stephen to me, and his grace flooded over me, right? And some of you, you have had that. When Christ came, he said, bring them to me, and it changed you. That's renewal. Revival is when Jesus brings us all to himself afresh and anew. And then something triggers in us that says, the only thing I want, the only thing I will pray for, the only thing I will think about, the only thing I will long for is God send revival to everybody else too. Like I don't care about anything else. I don't long for anything else. I just simply, God, please, please bring revival. And there are moments in the history of the church when the collective cry of people becomes so desirous of God that he actually responds and says, I will. And his spirit breaks out. And I don't know what else to long for more than that. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.